Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I think there's not a better uh, scripture that completely tells the gospel. You'll give him the name Jesus, which was a Greek form of Joshua, which meant salvation, or actually perfectly translated, means save, like save us, save, 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 help, 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 save us. And this is all the prophecies. Come. I mean, you know, there's thousands of years of prophecy. They know that a virgin's going to have the baby and all these things. And, but really, the big thing is this. He's coming for one purpose. His name will be Jesus, for he's coming to do one thing. Everyone goes, so people can be saved. Well, kind of. The whole sentence makes a lot more sense than partial sentence, okay? It's this. You'll name him Jesus, because even in his name will represent what he's going to do. He's come to save people from sin. And in this sentence, you find the only problem that is afflicted, the only disease that has afflicted any of us, ultimately and communally and universally, sin. If you preach against anything else but sin, you become a hypocrite, judgmental, self-righteous, because God only condemns one thing, sin. So if you're going to partner with God to condemn something, condemn sin. And condemn it powerfully. Stand with him in his righteousness and go, Lord, you said you'd come and you're going to judge the nations against their sin someday. And I agree with that and I bless you in that. And God, I'll stand with you on that day and I'll agree with you. But, but, (laughs) you have to first let him condemn sin in you. You have to agree and say, God, there is no good thing in me. I'm not better than this person. I'm not better than, I am sinful i am a sinner i have purposely sinned against you i have sinned against other i've sinned against myself but really i've ignored you i've ignored your law i've lied because it made me look better i stole because i wanted i coveted because they shouldn't really have it i lusted because i wish i could have her i hate that man because he should be dead i did all these things because of what i feel what i think what i want what i desire And you have to say, oh God, that's so wicked. And it's not because my dad did this, my mother did this, my friend did this. That's You deal with them. But God, with or without them. (laughs) Check this out. Think about the most abused person. There's some in this room. You've been molested. You've been, and, and you could blame everything on mom and dad. Guess what? Take them out of the picture. Give yourself the best looking life. You'd still be condemned for sin. You'd still be a mess. You'd still have a problem. You'd still have wickedness in your heart. Why? Because all of us are prone. We're born into sin and we choose to sin. So, I mean, I have compassion for people that have been done wrong. I've been done wrong too. But when I came to Christ, I had to start nailing that stuff to the cross. And I had to start looking at me and not them. Because guess what? Some of those people that have been so wicked... You'll be surprised how many of them get born again in this process. Wouldn't it be terrible for us who are so good and not like them to burn in hell while they sit in heaven? I mean, it really does happen all the time. This is why people on death row will meet them in heaven more than we'll meet some of the people we meet in church. Because they were so faced with reality of who they were. Where we've just decided we're going to paint reality another color. We're going, to, we're going to take ourselves and patch ourselves up, put a little more makeup on, put a little more this, patch this up, make, put on a front. And really, the Lord himself makes fun of us in that place. You know that? James, he's like, look at this guy, man. It, it, it's, you look at the word of God and you don't do anything with that. He's like a guy that looks in the mirror and can't remember what he looks like five minutes later. 
He's like, do you know how stupid that is? To look at the law of God and ignore it? To look at the word of God and just go, oh, it doesn't apply to me because I'm not like them? He's like, that's silly. When we walk in pride and say, no, 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 I don't need this. I don't need this. I'm better than them. He's, he goes, no, you can't come. No. Even if he spent most of your life calling you, no, no, you can't come until you let me condemn sin in you. Until you let me condemn that sin and you agree with my condemnation on that sin. Until you look at your wickedness, call it wickedness, and agree with me judging that wickedness. Meaning, if you could sum it up in one thing, he goes, I require humility. I require total humility. I require you to humble yourself. I require you to not be the best, but to see yourself as corrupted and lost. And the one thing none of us want to do is humble ourselves. Because when you humble yourselves, people start talking about you. When you humble yourself, you can look like a fool. But guess what? That's just part of the cost. That's part of the price. To choose Christ is to say, I have nothing left. You know, when I became a Christian, let me tell you, nobody liked me. Because last week, we were having fun together. Last week, we were enjoying life together. Now, I'm telling them that I don't want to do these things, that I have, God's called me into righteousness, that I can't live that way anymore. I'm telling them that, you know, you guys didn't know this, but I did this, and I did this. What? You did what? You stole what from me? Oh, yeah, sorry about that. I wish I could pay it back, but I, you know, I just want you to know. I mean, I started telling my friends what, what evil was in me. And they, guess what? They weren't like us too. They were like, what's wrong with you? How dare you? Who do you think you are? Did you hear what he did? I'm like, you did it with me. Like, oh, no, no, but I had a good reason to do it with you. All of a sudden, I was the fool. They still to this day, if I see these people, I'm a joke. But it required me losing myself. I didn't have any protection anymore. I had to let God condemn my sin. And I had to just let it all out. And he says he came for one purpose, that's to save people from sin. We have to preach against sin, and we have to preach a Savior that came to save us from sin. This is the purpose of the gospel. This is the purpose that we were creating God's image, and we tainted that image. God in righteousness had to condemn us, but God in love and righteousness sent his son so that we wouldn't have to pay our fine, that he would pay our fine in our place, that he would be the substitutionary sacrifice. He'd be the propitiation for our sins. He would get in the way between us and God, not because God is mean and horrible, but because God is so good and righteous. And he has to do what's right, like a judge on the bench, like a good father or mother has to do what's right. And he said, sin is so vile to me, it cannot be, I'm holy, it can't get near me. We say, how can God send people to hell for doing such small things? Oh, but it's so big. Do you know why it's so big? Because what we lose when we sin is life. And life is one thing that cannot be recreated out of the hands of man. It never can. The soul cannot be recreated. The soul cannot come through, you know, cosmetology school. The soul cannot come through great science. The soul, life, life itself cannot be attained except through a supernatural God who gives it, and he gives it once. And he gives it once to be eternal forever. Forever, to never end. To never, ever end. He sends that life. And we lose the value of life. We lose the goodness of life. We, we taint it with sin. And it's so vile to take the most precious commodity ever created, which was life, and we ruin it. So you think, well, why would someone go to hell for being a liar? Because being a liar is so wicked that it ruined and it tainted life. Took the most, it's, the, it's greater than gold. It's greater than silver. It's the most costly commodity, and we ruined it. And then we didn't just do it once. Everyone wants to act like, well, why would God judge me? I haven't been that bad. 
I've only done secret things that no one found out about. But I'm going to tell you, in the core of our hearts, we're wicked. We really are. And we're hopeless. That's the rough part. We're hopeless. Did you know that? We have no hope in ourselves. Isn't it sad that we have no way to get out? But this same God that's just and righteous, he's full of love and righteousness. And he gives that son, and he says, if you'll, if you'll come to him, he'll save you from those sins, that penalty. If you come to him, that's what, come to Jesus, right? Be forgiven, come to Jesus. But there's a problem in that. Come to Jesus. Oh, I, I realize I'm a sinner. I realize I'm condemned. God, I agree with you. I am a sinner. God, I'm going to come to Jesus. Lord, I want to come to Jesus. Would you just forgive me? God, I want to come to Jesus so you can change me. God, I want to come to you. Just come do Just come on. God, I'm here. Come on, come on, come on, come on. There's a problem. Second Peter 3, 9. It's the last one I'll give you. Now, before I read this, I want to tell you what Second Peter is about. It's about this wonderful day that's coming. It's full of beauty. It's full of uh, light and wonder. It's full of just amazement, and it's called the Judgment Day of Jesus, where Jesus comes, and let me just mess you up, it's going to be beautiful. Now, that sounds really weird, isn't it? Because all of us think that God should, we want God to be a savior, but we don't want him to be holy. Because we're like, if you're holy and you're righteous, then you're going to kill my grandma, because she's a sinner. And so we're like this. This is why we love stories of the rapture. Because we, we're going to like, we're just going to evangelize as we feel fit, you know, because, you know, really, we're just getting out of here, honestly, you know. Uh, check your Bible. It doesn't seem so clear to me anymore that we're just getting out of here, by the way, okay? We might just see these days, okay? And I have a feeling we will when you read the scriptures. And so, either, but either way, we have like really no love in our hearts because we're like, I'm getting out of here and we're not going to have to look at this. We're, we're not, because I've seen enough Kirk Cameron movies that like maybe a few people are going to get out. So what I'll do is I'll leave a little, you know, anonymous note in grandma's drawer that says, if you don't see me, but only find my socks, you know, uh, the rapture came, but hold on, you know, it's, you'll make it, you know, seven more years of torture. Okay. It'll be fine. Okay. And so, uh, but really we have this attitude of like, it's all going to work out. And then Jesus, we're going to look away and then Jesus is going to like blast everybody, but we won't feel it. We won't see it. We won't care about it. And we're just going to be like, you know, playing harps and like doing something on clouds of some sorts with some kind of wings that we don't, how do we get those? You know, and like, <laughs> so we all have this attitude of like, God's going to come. So Jesus is going to do this stuff, but it'll be beautiful because we won't see it. But really he's going to come back and he's going to be great. But he's going to be so severe, as Isaiah said, that not even us will agree fully with him. We'll be like, you're so harsh. You're too harsh. And the reason is because we've never been, we've never seen his holiness so pure. And even though we're like, we're born again, we're serving you, we're all the way in, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, whatever, we don't add to that little tag. All of a sudden, he's going to show up in full glory. And when he shows up in full glory, I mean, the waves of the ocean will be peeled back. It's not like a mountain will break. It's the mountains of the world will break open. It says the sky itself will like unravel when he comes. Because when he comes in holiness, he'll judge the earth so severely. I mean, everything will be purified with fire. And the only thing that will remain are those things that came from the cross. This is what 2 Peter's about, that there's a day coming that's so severe. He says he won't, he won't judge the, the earth in, in waters again. Think about it. The flood of Noah was like washing the surface of the earth. The, the one to come, it says, will come with fervent heat. And his holy fire will burn this place so much that literally he'll boil the earth. 
purifying so that the only thing left is what is holy, and the only thing we've ever attained that was holy was from the blood of Christ. And the playing field will be equaled out. And the only life there'll be left is that with birth in Christ. This is why you have to be crucified with Christ, that you no longer live, that Christ lives through you. Because the only life that will be able to make it through the judgment seat of Christ will be the life of Christ living in us. This is how severe it is. And so in this place, he throws out this scripture that we like to hear sermons about. Because we think it means something else. And 2 Peter 3, 9 says this, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. You remember he promised you that car? Um, as some count slackness, like your mom, uh, but it is long-suffering because he really cares about you getting that car. And he's not willing that anyone should perish and blah, 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 other stuff. Okay. But he's actually talking about the promise. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise of judgment. Meaning people are saying, where is he? Why is he, if he's going to return and judge the earth, like it's, like it's going to happen or something. We've been here this long. Won't we be here much longer? I mean, come on. It's up to us to save the earth, not for Christ to save us. And all of a sudden we become humanitarians instead of gospel preachers. And we care about the stuff that will die instead of the stuff that will live. All of a sudden we're making kingdoms out of straw instead of polishing the gold of Christ's cross. Saying, God, this is what matters. This other stuff will burn away. We preserve ourselves instead of the life that Christ gave us. And he says, he's not slack. He's not lazy concerning the promise of judgment. As some would say, you know, slackness of time. And he says, but he's long-suffering toward us. Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape then? I think about that. How are we going to escape God if we neglect so great a salvation? He's talking about his long-suffering love unto us. Meaning we're under the judgment of God, but God is full of love. And he says, I'm holding out. I'm speaking to your heart. I'm calling you in as long as I can do it. I'm holding off. That word long suffering means he has the ability to put up with crap for a long time. I looked it up. That's what the Greek says. <laughs> Nobody means it. He has this ability to the first time you wronged him, he goes, okay, like I'm holding myself. The second time he's like, I'm good. Then it's 100, 200, 1 million, 2 million. And all of a sudden he's like, that's it. I promised you I'd judge you for that. I consistently loved you. I consistently convicted your heart. I consistently spoke to you not to trust in man, not to trust in things, not to trust in your church. Not to tr I consistently pressed you to righteousness. Life came, life went. Judgment is here. It's appointed to every man to die and then to face the judgment. Death came, judgment came. But he says, he's not slack concerning his promise of judgment, as some would consider slackness. But he's long-suffering toward us. He has a great salvation. He's not willing that anyone should perish. It's not the will of God. Is literally what it means there. It's not the will. It's not his desire. It's not his purpose that anyone should perish, die, and be judged. It's not what he wants. It's not what he wants. But that everyone should come to Jesus. Or did I change that for some reason? Is that what it says? It's, that's interesting, isn't it? It says, it doesn't say, he's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to Jesus. That's not what it says. There's a roadblock between man and Jesus, even. It's interesting. The roadblock between us and God is sin. The path between us and God is Christ and his cross, but there is a roadblock between us and Jesus. And it's the big one. It says that it's not his will that anyone should perish, meaning, meaning this, it's an inclusive gospel in that sense. What inclusive means, everyone can come. 
But, you know, we have all this stuff like Unitarianism, which Unitarianism means that uh, all paths lead the same place, basically. And I don't know why they, they have churches. It's just silly. I mean, like, like, why do I even need to come there? If I'm, if I'm going to get to the same place you are, why even show up at church, honestly? Because, like, you know, I, I don't like that ride. So, it's, you know, it's like it's, we're all heading in this. But they believe, like, you know, so they kind of, Unitarian churches or Unity churches are just, they're false. It's a false gospel to the core. I mean, it's not... They don't even act like it's a, it's a right gospel. It's to the core a false gospel. And so they get people like Hindus who have um, absolutes to bend to say Christians can also have what they have. And you have Buddhists, they get them to bend. But mostly the big group they have bend are people that have Christian backgrounds that they bend. And they say, well, how could a God of love condemn all these Buddhists and all these Hindus and all these, uh, you know, Muslims and whatever else, you know, all these Satanists. And, all these, um, and so they all say all paths go to the same place. That's a lie of the devil. But they say we're inclusive. They say we're inclusive. And then you have the other group that's even worse, I think, but it looks better, is universalism. And uh, the universalist says, we believe in Christ. We believe in the scriptures. We believe that Jesus came to pay for the sins of all mankind. But that's where we differ. We believe that he's paid for all mankind. We go, well, we agree with that. And they go, no, no, no. We believe not only did he pay for the fine, that every man will be saved whether he knew Christ or not. And the reason he would know Christ here is just for a better life. Well, now here's a big problem there because Jesus never came to give anyone a better life. Christ didn't come to pay anybody's credit card bill. He didn't come to make anybody happier. He didn't come to give us just a really great day. Guess what it says in Matthew one twenty one? He came to do. He came to save people from sin. So his sole purpose on that cross was to save us from sin. And so you have this, you know, the Unitarians that say we're all going to make it anyways because God's just look, you know, whoever God is, she, it, whatever, uh, we're all just trying to, you know, do our best and whoever that is knows that. So they're saying whoever's up there doesn't really have any kind of standard or desire or requirements. Uh, and then the Universalists, uh, they say, well, if Christ paid the fine, how would God be so mean to not let anybody have it? But the scriptures do not back that up at all, either one. Meaning this, if universalism is true, then most of the scriptures are not. If Unitarianism is true, the one group that is not invited is Christians. Because you can't be. Because we're just too pig-headed to think that we're sinners and we need Christ to save us. And that we're lost and we needed him to find us. And that God only requires one atonement for sin and that's his wrath put upon his son on that cross. So we are too stubborn, or maybe we're just too broken. Maybe we're just too degenerate in our hearts without Christ. And that's what we found, is that he came to save us from our sins, and that's what he's done. Okay, so this scripture, though, does say that God is inclusive in the sense that he wants everybody to come. The exclusionary part of him, meaning he's very exclusive, he only lets you come one place, and that's to repentance. Everybody can come to repentance. Meaning God loves everybody and he wants to save everybody, but he has one path and that's the narrow road. And that road is difficult and narrow and many, many try to enter, but only a few come. And Peter said, are you trying to say that only a few are saved? And Jesus wraps it up by saying, yeah. They're like, whoa, 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 hold on. Are you saying that not, you're saying this loving God who's going to put you on the cross. Are you trying to say that he's not going to save very many? Are you saying few will be saved? And Jesus responds with, yes, few will be saved. I'll pay for their sins, but few will come on the right path, which is known as the path of repentance. Because everyone's being asked to come, but the only ones that are saved are the ones that come to repentance in Christ. And if you think I'm outside the Bible, just look at the Sermon of John the Baptist, 
who was baptizing people as they confessed their sins, they humbled themselves. Baptism in those days for a Jewish person was very unusual because there was only two different people that got baptized. It was the priest was baptized to say that he had become holy and usable, right here. And then there was the other group was converts to Judaism, and they had gone through, you know, we would call it, they got bar mitzvah, even if they were 40. They went through the training for 12 years. And what they did, they got baptized publicly to say, everything I was is wrong. My old life is dead, and I'm giving myself over to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, when John the Baptist stood out there and he said, I'm going to baptize you in the name of the one to come, basically he's like, you know, for the repentance of sin, for the remission of sins, he was saying, this will humble you. This is going to be a public dedication of everything I was is gone. That what I was died in the water. I was crucified in there, and I came up as a new person. And then we have all the people that were churchgoers, and they showed up, all the really religious people. They played in worship bands. They were in Christian bands, Christian tattoos on their noses, and, you know, whatever it is. And, and they're just really born again, for real. And they, they showed up at John the Baptist, just like they're showing up at our, our baptisms these week. You know, they show up. They show up to services, and they go, hey, wait, wait. This is good and all, but we don't need this. Remember, they didn't get in. They'd stood on the side as everyone else went in. They watched, and they were like, Okay, that's good. That's good. That's not good. I like to critique, you know, the way you started your sermon. Don't ever start with repentance, John the Baptist. I mean, that just really doesn't work these days. So just keep it to the end. Make it softer. Tell people they need to change their mind. That's always better. Uh, you know, soften your message because you just don't get a crowd that way. And uh, all of a sudden, John the Baptist looks. He's like, you bunch of snakes, man. He's like, you group, of, you bunch of snakes. You're so deceitful. And he goes, by the way, who even told you to come, basically? He says this, who warned you? This is the person, this is like if I called you out by name and asked you this question. He said, who warned you of the wrath to come? Meaning, the only way you get to come to my baptism is if you're first responding to the, the warning of wrath against your sin, the judgment of God. Who told you to come in fear because of your sins against a holy God? And they're like, well, we don't, well, that's not why we came. And he's like, then you came for the wrong reason. These people were broken. They've come to the waters of repentance because they were broken of their sins. They're like, you know, we don't need that. We're sons of Abraham. He goes, don't you tell me that you're sons of Abraham. Don't tell me you're a Christian. Don't tell me you're born again. Don't use phraseology that is solely biblical. You don't get to borrow that right now. Don't talk to me how you're going to follow the teachings of Jesus. You don't get to follow the teachings of Jesus. This is sole property of the body of Christ. He said, I tell you what, you want to have some of this? Then, this is what John the Baptist said. He says, then bear fruits worthy of repentance. Meaning, you have to first understand, God's going to judge your sin. Be shaken by that. Come to a place of repentance that so changes your life. And guess what? You can come to Christ. Some people preach this false gospel. Come to Christ, and he will change you. And you're like, well, that's... That's kind of right. Change your attitude. Bring your broken heart to Christ. Let him kill it. Let him pluck it out, stick it on the ground, smash it in the carpet. See yourself as this big vacant hole. And he goes, okay, now this is the only life you get to live. And he gives you his own heart. You're like, but that cost me everything. You're trying to scrape up all the pieces of your heart. And that's how most people in church are living, with these busted, broken hearts that they think have been fixed enough to be Christians. 
No, you have to see this thing is wicked. I, you're halfway plucking out of your own chest when you come to him. You're like, this life that I thought was everything, this life I was living, this is nothing, this is rotten. God, help me. I will lay it all down. Everything, it's yours, it's yours. If you would just save me, knowing that he doesn't have to. God, please, God, please. I'm asking for mercy. The only sinner's prayer in the entire Bible of the New Testament. The only one in the New Testament is this. The tax collector on his face going, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Are you here? This is what you have to do. I don't care how much ministry you've done. I don't care what church you go to, what affiliation you have, what your pastor's name is, how you've been serving him for six years, how you've been in his band, whatever it is. You've been writing worship songs. You're really impressive. You make Christian t-shirts on the weekend, whatever it is. Guess what? That doesn't make you born again. That doesn't make you regenerate. That doesn't make anything in your life change. That just means you painted up a broken, nasty heart. And I'm telling you, you get to come to Christ. God says come, but there's a roadblock and it's called your repentance. He's calling sinners to come home, but to knock on the door is to knock on your heart first. I got born again with this revelation. Whoa, I need to repent. If I'm going to come to Christ, I, I got to die to myself. And the Holy Spirit was pressing on me and pressing on me and pressing on me. And the Holy Spirit's true words are not repeat this prayer. The Holy Spirit's true words are, you got to die. Holy Spirit says, your sins are killing you. God will judge your sins. There's wrath to come. Christ is your only hope. Let your heart be broken. Holy Spirit's wanting to crumble that heart before you and say, he's your only hope. There's no salvation, any other name, any other purpose. Come to Christ through repentance. And I remember all I said, it wasn't emotional, it was nothing. It was just a breaking of my soul. And I said, okay. I'm telling you, I'm soundly converted. I don't have to question that. The spirit of God witnesses with my spirit that I'm a child of God. And it's been that way since 1995. I've had ups and downs, but let me tell you, the one thing I hold on from this whole, is the cross. I never let go because I'm so great. No, because he's so great. He came to save me from my sins and he did it. And he did a great job. He's done a saving job. He's a consistent savior. He's a long suffering savior. I don't deserve heaven. I deserve hell, but he paid my fine. And I stand here right now, not as a person trying to get you to think we're some cool church or whatever. Screw this church. I want you to come to a great savior. Let your heart be broken and wounded. Come on, bended knee. Beat on that check. God have mercy on me and let him save a sinner. Oh, it's, his, it's the best job he ever does. It's his, it's his greatest line of work is saving sinners. He doesn't save righteous people. Oh, no, he can't. He won't. And he goes, I'm like a doctor that didn't come for healthy people. I didn't come to give checkups on people that don't think they need anything. He said, I came to heal sick people. He goes, in the same way, I didn't come to save people that think they don't need saving. I came to reject the righteous and to save the sinners. Come on. There's nothing in us that's worthy. Oh, but he's worthy. He's such a good savior. And he comes and he changes that heart. He washes away your, your conscience gets clean. Oh, and then he justifies you. I could preach that for two hours. Oh, he doesn't just forgive you. He doesn't just say the best was over. He just comes and he says, okay, now let me take that life, present it before my father. I mean, imagine that. He takes your life. This is why it's called the new birth. This is why it's called being born again. He takes your life, your ruined, messed up life. He takes you by the neck and he sets you like a child before God. And he says, here's a perfectly brand new justified life. 
And the father doesn't see some great, you know, he doesn't see a 36-year-old man. He doesn't see a pastor of, of churches. He sees a little child that he made in his image. And he says, here it is, father. Washed clean, made new, regenerated, made perfect, laid before you. Here's your kid again. I've redeemed him. I ransomed him. I got him back. That's what I am. I'm just that child that was a big mess. And he, brought, he said, I've justified him, Father. And I get to go into the throne room. I get to kick the door open, come into the throne room of heaven and honor him. I don't take him lightly. I get to come before him and say, I don't deserve this, but I get to be here. Father, you're so good. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the blood. It still washes me. It still washes me.